We're not opening our Bibles to the book of Jonah this morning. Instead, we are opening our Bibles to the Word of Christ in the Gospel of Matthew. Indeed, we saw in our first message that Jonah is indeed a true historical figure. And everything that happens in, happened in the book of Jonah was fact. The Lord Jesus refers to him as a factual person. And everything that happened to him, Jesus teaches, is true. And we need to heed it. In fact, Jonah is a sign to us. You could keep one finger in Matthew, and you could put your other finger there in, in Jonah, chapter 1. We're going to look at a couple of verses and then enter into our study this morning from Jesus' words. You remember at the end of Jonah, chapter 1, we read these words. <clears throat> and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. And then at the end of Jonah's prayer, at ch in chapter 2 and verse 10, Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. Now, how much more is the book of Jonah than an interesting story of a man being swallowed by a fish? And yet, that is how many people think about the book of Jonah. And even more than an instructive account of God restoring a prodigal prophet is the book of Jonah. Jonah's repentance and his restoration to service called by God is, is essential to the story of Jonah, but it's not the main theme. We come closer to the main theme of Jonah as we behold God's mercy upon the penitent Ninevites and its message of hope for believing Gentiles as well as Jews. But even this wonderful truth, which is so glorious, is not the chief message of Jonah. Indeed, the main message of the book of Jonah is even more glorious than the hope-filled message of God's worldwide plan of salvation. In fact, it lies behind it, and that's, it is that which motivates it. The prophet's central theme is embedded in his experience of being swallowed by the fish, entombed three days and three nights in the stomach of that fish, and then ejected onto dry land. It is the prophet's experience, as it points to a far more wonderful story of rescue and redemption that validates the gospel message as the good news for a lost world. You see, Jonah's experience, our Lord Jesus teaches, points to himself. Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Jonah. The glorious truths hinted at in Jonah's miraculous experience of salvation, it forms a foreshadow of the greater redemption purchased by a greater than Jonah. Reading from Luke's parallel to Matthew chapter 12, we read in chapter 11, verses 29, 30, and 32, these words. And as the crowds were increasing, he, that is Jesus, 
began to say, this generation is a wicked generation. And Jesus could, if he had come in 2022, could have said the same thing about this generation and this nation and we as a people. This generation is a wicked generation. It seeks for a sign. And yet no sign shall be given to it but the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so shall the Son of Man be to this generation. Speaking of the generation to whom he was speaking. And of course, outwardly to ourselves. The men of Jonah, excuse me, the men of Nineveh shall stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it. Why? Because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. We saw that something greater than the temple is here, Jesus said earlier. Now he says something greater than Jonah is here. And in the same context, speaking of Solomon, he'll say something greater than Solomon is here. And so we need to have, who heed not only Jonah and Solomon, we need not only to focus upon the temple, but all these things, what they point to, and that is Jesus Christ, Him crucified, raised from the dead, seated at the right hand of God, and one day coming back to judge the living and the dead. Jesus, notice, says that Jonah's experience was assigned to the Ninevites. Now we're going to examine the important implications of this point in a later message, but suffice it to observe here the broader application of Jonah's message to us as we might call ourselves modern Ninevites. We live in a wicked nation. Indeed, we have more light than the Ninevites did. And therefore, we shall incur a stricter judgment for turning from that light. Jonah's experience in the great fish was a sign, and it grounded his message of repentance to that pagan people. Jonah has a word for pagan America. Jonah is a sign pointing our heathen nation to Jesus Christ. We don't need a sign from heaven because we have God's own Son from heaven, risen from the dead, a greater than Jonah, calling us to repentance. Listen to Jesus. In another place, Matthew chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came up and testing him, asked him to show them a sign from heaven. But he answered and said to them, When it is evening, you will say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. And he argues from the natural to the supernatural, from the things that they can see around them to their ignorance of things that they should know. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky? Your accurate weather forecasters but cannot discern the signs of the times. You can't understand the things of time in light of the issues of eternity, he's saying. 
You're great weather forecasters, but you don't know that you're hastening toward judgment. An evil and, excuse me, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. And a sign will not be given it except the sign of Jonah. And he left them and went away. Now this morning as we consider the sign of Jonah, we're going to look at it under three headings and come to a few words of concluding application. We're going to look at the sign of Jonah, its contextual presentation, that is what is going on in the immediate context in which the sign of Jonah is presented from the lips of our Lord. Secondly, its redemptive signification, what does it mean? And thirdly, it's fearful admonition, what it speaks to us if we heed not its message. So notice, first of all, the sign of Jonah, its contextual presentation. <clears throat> now, as we read these two accounts in Luke and in Matthew, we see that swelling crowds followed the Lord Jesus, and they observed His many mighty miracles, and having observed those things, they wondered aloud, if He was the promised Messiah, could this not be the Son of David? Jesus had just marvelously healed a blind and mute man who was afflicted by a demon. And this miracle was not lost upon the religious leaders, which were like little dogs snapping at Jesus' heels all the time. But instead of concluding Jesus' messianic identity from his miracles and his message, they drew a diabolical conclusion, accusing Jesus not of coming from God, but being empowered by the devil. They came to exactly the wrong conclusion. They saw the miracles, and they concluded that he was empowered by the infernal devil rather than the glorious God. And dear ones, we meet an important lesson here. Unbelief is never satisfied with reasonable evidence. They had all the evidence that God could give in the person of Jesus Christ through his marvelous messages and his many mighty miracles. These unbelieving Pharisees and scribes continually witnessed Jesus' miracles. And yet they demanded that he perform further miraculous signs to confirm his messianic identity. You haven't shown us enough. And instead of believing Jesus' clear credentials, their unbelief led them, as it led the devil in tempting Christ, to demand him to prove what they already knew. But they rejected it. You see, what they did is they put out the eyes of sense with the fingers of unbelief and steeled their hearts against the clear evidence that Jesus was indeed, with ample evidence, the promised son of David. It is they, you see, who were in league with the devil, who was a murder from the beginning and a liar. In their hatred and their envy, 
They sought to turn away the growing crowds that were following our Lord. And since they could not deny Jesus' miracles, they accused him of performing his miracles, not by the power of God, but by the work of Satan. And so they turned themselves away from the mercy of God. They attributed Jesus' miracles not to the power of the Holy Spirit, but to the power of the infernal spirit. Just a word of application to you. If you are among those who demand miraculous signs to confirm your faith, if I don't see this, I won't believe, that kind of mentality. Understand that this is no evidence of faith, but of unbelief. The unbelieving scribes and Pharisees were simply imitating the devil who demanded miracles from Christ when he tempted him in the desert. You know, it may sound objective. I'm a true searcher. I'm being very objective here. I need enough credible evidence to believe upon Jesus. It may even sound spiritual to ask for signs to substantiate your faith. But your demand for miracles really instead only demonstrates and displays your diabolical disbelief. The devil and those who followed him will refuse to believe no matter how plain is the evidence. These unbelievers lack no evidence that Jesus was the Messiah sent from God. And nor do you need anything more than the witness that you have in the Bible of his divine credentials. All these things are recorded for us here in this infallible, authoritative book. Jesus states in very plain terms to those who'd witnessed his miracles and heard his message as giving adequate testimony to his divine identity, Matthew, or excuse me, John chapter 8, verses 23 through 25. He identifies their origin, even in contrast to his own. And he was saying to them, these detractors, they would not believe that he was who he said he was. And he was saying to them, you are from below I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I said therefore to you that you shall die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you shall die in your sins. And so they were saying to him, who are you? He just said, I've come from above. It's obvious that I have. Look at my miracles. They testify to my divine origin and identity. You see, they just couldn't get enough evidence to satisfy them. Who are you? Jesus said to them, what have I been saying to you from the beginning? You see, you're hearing it again. You're seeing it again, again and again, and you're just not getting it. Brethren, we are reminded of the simple but profound truth that faith does not come by witnessing miracles. Instead, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. 
The same miracles that confirm the faith of believers only serve to confirm the unbelief in those who refused to believe. How many miracles did Pharaoh see? And yet his heart got harder and harder and harder. That's who we are apart from the grace of God. You see the light or the heat that melts the clay or melts the wax also hardens the clay. Jesus' response to sign seekers is as plain as it is pointed. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. And a sign will not be given it except the sign of Jonah. Look at the sign of Jonah. Read what it says. Apply it to your own lives. Brethren, Jesus refused to gratify unbelief with miracles. He wasn't a carnival showman. He wasn't like Simon the magician who did miracles, magic to dazzle people. Not only did his enemies deny that he came from God, but we saw that they attributed his miracles to the devil. Their unbelief is on display, as we saw in Matthew 16 and verse 4. They demanded from him a sign from heaven. Now, I think those commentators are probably right that when they demanded of Jesus a sign from heaven, not believing that he came from heaven, they were demanding of him something he couldn't do. See, they believed that his signs came from below, not from, a, from above. His miracles were given him by power from the devil, not authorization from God. And because they rejected his divine identity, they commanded him to perform a miracle they deemed he could not do. They reasoned that his failure to do a sign from heaven, to perform some kind of marvelous miracle beyond what they'd already seen, that if he couldn't produce a sign from heaven, his failure would discredit him and prove him to be an imposter, and if shown to be an imposter, they would charge him with a capital crime of being a false prophet, and he would have to die. Now it's clear that he had already, that they had already planned to kill him, Matthew 12 and, and verse 14. They were just looking for grounds to do it. They weren't looking for evidence to believe, they were looking for grounds to condemn. But rather than gratifying their unbelief by showing them a sign from above, he instead pointed them to a sign from below. Not something to dazzle their eyes, but instead to confound their hearts. Not something personally exalting, but something that's humbling and even humiliating. He pointed them to Jonah, and then from Jonah back to himself. So that's the sign of Jonah, its contextual presentation. Notice, secondly, the sign of Jonah, its redemptive 
signification. What is its significance? What is the sign of Jonah? And how does the sign of Jonah point to Jesus? And in what ways are Jonah and Jesus similar? And in what ways are they different? Now, if we would understand how Jonah points to Jesus and how Jesus in his person and redemptive work fulfilled what is pictured in the experience of Jonah, we must understand what a sign signifies. What does it do? Well, Jesus is using the term sign here to speak of Jonah as a type of himself. And what happened to Jonah, his experience, as a type of what is going to happen to him. What happened to Jonah in his experience points to Jesus' experience. It's typical. It points forward to his death, burial, and resurrection. You see, a type is something that is similar to something in the future. It's less than it, but it has certain elements that point to something greater than it. Jonah, as a prophet, pointed to some prophet greater than himself. You see, he pointed to Jesus, the great prophet. Jonah's miraculous experience in being swallowed by and then entombed in the stomach of a great fish and finally ejected alive three days later onto dry ground pointed to the miraculous experience of a greater someone. And Jesus describes himself as something greater than Jonah is here. He is saying that what happened to Jonah prefigured, it pictured, it formed a sort of prophecy pointing to something greater that he would fully accomplish in himself. Jonah's redemption anticipates a greater redemption. Jesus, the greater than Jonah, he says, is here. This was Jesus' word to those who sought a miracle to confirm his messianic identity. And he says, you look at this sign and you believe you'll be saved. So our Lord sums up the connection between Jonah and himself in Matthew 12 and verse 40. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And if you have any doubt whether I am the Son of Man, remember what happened to Jonah and wait and watch, and you'll see it happened to me on a far greater scale. So notice several points of comparison or similarities between Jonah's experience and the redemptive experience and work of Christ. First, the time that Jonah was in the belly of the fish, three days and three nights, prefigures Jesus' three days and three nights in the grave. And we saw that it wasn't three 24-hour periods in Jewish reckoning. Part of one day and all of another day and part of a third day are considered three days and three nights. The Lord Jesus Christ, He was crucified on a Friday. 
And he was in the grave part of Friday, all the day Saturday, and part of the day on Sunday. Second, the pattern of Jonah's being swallowed by the fish and then ejected upon dry land prefigures Jesus' death and resurrection from the grave. Jonah went into the fish's mouth and into his belly and came out and was spit up on dry land. So Jesus went into the grave and he came out three days later. Thirdly, the Ninevites, for whom the regurgitated prophet was a sign prefigured Israel, for whom Jesus would later return from the grave as a resurrected Messiah, as a sign. So we read in Luke's parallel, For just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so shall the Son of Man be to this generation. And notice these points of contrast or differences between Jonah's experience and Jesus' redemptive work. First of all, there's a contrast between the persons of Jonah and Jesus, obviously. But consider them. Jonah was a guilty sinner. Jesus was a Jonah was a guilty sinner. Jesus was the sinless Savior. Jonah was a mere man. Jesus is the God-man. Behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Secondly, there's a contrast between Jonah in the fish and Jesus in the grave. Jonah didn't suffer actual death, but pictured it. But Jesus plainly died. It's clear when he was taken down from the cross, he was dead. Thirdly, there's a contrast between the response of the Ninevites to Jonah's preaching and the response of Israel to Jesus' preaching. The men of Nineveh shall rise or shall stand up with this, with this generation at the judgment and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Implication is you haven't repented. Indeed, John writes in the first chapter of his gospel, he came to his own, speaking of Jesus, coming to the Jews he came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. John 1.11 Fourth, there will be a contrast yet between the eternal destiny of Jonah's repenting hearers and Jesus' unbelieving audience. The men of Nineveh shall stand up with this generation at the judgment and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. We meet also with further instructive comparisons and contrasts between Jonah and Jesus. First of all, Jonah at first ran from his commission from Jehovah, but Jesus fully embraced and never flinched from his commission given him by his father. Jesus states that in a number of places. John 6:38 For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, that's what Jonah did. He said, not your will, but mine be done. Jesus said the opposite. Not to do my own will, Jesus said, but the will of him who sent me. He was dispatched on a mission, and he didn't flinch. 
John 4.34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And in his great high priestly prayer, he echoed this. John 17 and verse 4, I glorified thee on the earth, having accomplished the work which thou hast given me to do. Furthermore, Jonah's disobedience endangered the lives of the sailors by bringing them, bringing upon them a storm of wrath from God. But Jesus' obedience saves believing sinners from the wrath of God. Moreover, a guilty Jonah suffered God's penal judgment for his sin of rebellion. But our sinless Jesus suffered as the just one for the unjust that he might bring us to God. Jonah sacrificed himself to the waves to save a boat full of sailors. Jesus sacrificed himself under a torrent of divine wrath to save a world of sinners. Jonah appeased the wrath of God against him by being cast into the raging sea. Jesus propitiated the wrath of God against us by willingly suffering as a sacrifice for our sin. 1 John 1, or 2 and verse 2. He himself is the propitiation. He appeased the just wrath of God. He himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Furthermore, Jonah's entombment in the fish and regurgitation on the beach signaled the end of God's judgment against his sin and pointed to his new life in his new life from God. And Jesus' entombment in the grave and subsequent resurrection indicated God's satisfaction with his sacrifice and purchased both our justification and our new life in him. Romans 4, verse 25, He who was delivered up because of our transgression, speaking of Jesus, and was raised because of our justification. Now we are right in God who believe upon Him. We also have new life, Romans 6 and verse 4. Therefore we have been buried with Him through baptism into death, in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Hugh Martin sees the believer's union with Christ pictured in the experience of Jonah. Jesus died to our sin. He was buried. Indeed, he buried our sin forever in the tomb then he rose victorious over the grave with the, re, with the spoils of salvation, all for those for whom he died and who now live in him. Martin writes, In the days of his flesh, speaking of Jesus, he rather lived our life than his own. He lived under the law, in our relation to the law and under its condemnation, and he might well have said, Behold, I die daily. For as he bare the wrath of God, and just as in his favor is life, so in the wrath of God is death. 
For us, all the days of his flesh, he was made sin, and the wages of sin is death. But he died the death to an end. He died it all. He died it out. He died death dead and done. Beautifully put. Blood of God, what should be our response? To these things, we who have been redeemed by a greater than Jonah, who suffered our death and provided our resurrection in him. The psalmist anticipates the experience of our salvation through something, indeed someone greater than Jonah. Psalm 18 verses 1 through 6. I love thee, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge. My shield and the horn of my salvation. My stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. And I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompassed me, and the torrents of ungodliness terrified me. The cords of Sheol surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried to my God for help. He heard my voice out of his temple, and my cry for help before him came into his ears. That was Jonah's cry, essentially. But by way of anticipation, it was the cry of Jesus. And God heard him, and he rescued him, and he brought him forth from the grave with the spoils of our salvation. Indeed, we in him. Notice, having seen the, the contextual presentation and the redemptive signification of the sign of Jonah, finally to its fearful admonition. Is fearful admonition. Brethren, how relevant is Jonah's message of life from the dead to sinners like us who live in the shadow of death? It's stalking us. One day it will find us. One day it will dispatch us. One day it will bring us into the presence of God. Indeed, we are hastening to the judgment bar of God. We need the redemption from our sin provided by someone who's greater than Jonah. Let's be honest with ourselves. Our case is desperate. Only rescue by a divine deliverer will save us from God's just punishment of our sin. And brethren, the glorious news is that deliverer has come. And his deliverance comes in a most wonderful way. He was swallowed up in the belly of God's unsparing wrath against our sin so that he might pay for our prodigal ways. And 
And he suffered and died for our sin. And God raised him from the dead to overthrow all doubt that his sacrifice was fully accepted by God. Indeed, his resurrection from the grave is God's amen to Jesus. It is finished. The Ninevites repented when they heard the preaching of a lesser prophet. Brethren, we must not reject the good news of the prophet that he pointed to, even Jesus Christ our Lord. We must listen to him. We must trust him. And if we don't, what did Jesus say? We will die in our sins. The Ninevites turned to the Lord when confronted with Jonah's message of mercy. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation uttered from the mouth of the Savior himself? The Ninevites had very little light, and yet they repented. The Jews had greater light because the one to whom Jonah pointed was there. And we have a completed Bible. We have even more than what the Pharisees and the Sadducees saw and rejected. We have the faith once for all delivered to the saints. To whom much is given, much is required. Shall we not hear and heed God's message from the mouth of God's Son? Brethren, if we turn a deaf ear to Jesus, we faced a stricter judgment and a fierier hell. Indeed, Jonah's hearers will condemn us for refusing to repent under the preaching of a greater than Jonah. So argued our Lord, the men of Nineveh shall stand up with this generation at the judgment and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So what does that say to us by way of some concluding applications? I have a few words of warning and then a couple of exhortations. First of all, warnings. First of all, beware of any interest in Christ that doesn't lead to humble faith in and unreserved commitment to Him. How many like to hear Jesus? They like to see His miracles, and yet they remain in their unbelief. There's such thing as speculative faith. Many people are content to know about Jesus, but without ever really knowing Him. That only increases our condemnation. How many people are, they go to church, and they may go to Sunday school, and they may read their Bibles. All of these things are good. I would not negate the importance of these things at all. But they're trusting in what they know about Jesus without entrusting their souls to Jesus. 
See, the greater condemnation is upon such people who know about but don't trust in Jesus. Brethren, they are, they're interested spectators, but not true believers. Does that describe anybody here? Furthermore, beware of any demand for more evidence to warrant faith in Christ beyond what is provided by the Bible. Do you want more miracles? Read your Bible. And not a few religious people confuse their fascination with miracles, so-called today, with faith in Christ. They're constantly chasing after this miracle and that sign and that wonder. And their whole faith is, is built upon a very flimsy foundation at best. Many others demand something miraculous or they will not believe. Unless I see such and such... I will not believe in Jesus. Oh, really? Brethren, those who demanding, demand something more than the Bible's revelation about Jesus, they're never going to be satisfied. There's never going to be enough evidence to warrant their faith because they just keep kicking the can of faith down the road. Thirdly, Third warning, beware of using common, convenient excuses for not trusting Jesus. You may not demand miracles to believe upon Christ, but you may rely upon common arguments to affirm your unbelief and to encourage your doubts. Well, how can there be all this evil in the world? How can there be war and famine? What's going on? around the world? How can there be children dying of cancer and natural disasters? People's homes obliterated by tornadoes and being flooded out of their houses. How can there be a God if these things are happening? Well, again, I encourage you to read your Bible. There's a reason for all of these things. Brethren, this question is often asked by those who deny the reality of sin. They deny the reality of moral evil as defined by God. They deny that men are basically bad and not good. They don't look outside of themselves. Brethren, the problem's not out there. The problem's in here. They fail to see the signs that God has given, even in ordinary things. Luke chapter 13. Some people were killed when they were sacrificing. Their blood was mingled with their sacrifices. And in town, a natural disaster, we might call it, happened. The tower fell down and killed 18 people. Jesus said, don't look at the news and wonder if there's a good God. Don't think these people are worse or those people are bad. Don't think that way. Jesus said, unless you repent, you will likewise die. He argues from the circumstantial to the eternal. He says, these things should teach you to be prepared to meet God. 
And brethren, the real question is, and I don't have time to look into it here, we, we, we ask the question wrongly if we say, why did bad things happen to good people? Well, people aren't basically good, and these things happen for a reason. The question we should ask ourselves is, is why do good things happen to bad people? That's who we are, natively. God causes the rain to fall and the sun to rise on the unjust as well as the just. He provides us all things. He satisfies our hearts with food and gladness. The question we should be asking is, why these blessings? Why do I have a home and a job and chirping children running around the house? Paul teaches that the kindness of God should lead us to what? To repentance. Brethren, that Christ is the answer to our need and for solving the problems of the world conveniently escapes such people that reason unbelievingly like that. You see, our problem is not intellectual, nor is it a lack of evidence that God is and that the God that is is good. Ours is a moral problem. We are willfully blind to the goodness of God and our need for Christ. That, at the end of the day, is the problem. Fact is, until God opens our eyes, we remain happily blind to our need and His provision out of our love of our sin. Jesus put it this way, John 3, verses 19 and 20. And this is the judgment, that the light is come into the world, Jesus and the gospel of redemption for unworthy, hell-deserving sinners. And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. We don't like to face our sin. We'd rather excuse it away or deny it rather than deal with it. Honestly, And what is repentance, beloved? When we repent, we are being honest with ourselves, honest with our sin, honest with God. And we're not truly honest at all until we repent of our sins. And then we're dealing with things as they really are. You see, God must open our blind eyes or we will never see the kingdom of God. Until then, we refuse to believe. What did Jesus say? You will not come to me that you might have life. No, but, you know, if something marvelous happened, if someone was raised from the dead, oh, really? Do you remember Jesus speaking to the situation of the rich man and Lazarus? Lazarus, a godly man, goes into the bosom of Abraham. The rich man, he goes to hell after he dies. 
And he's arguing, as it were, with Abraham. He sees him on the other side of the great gulf fix that he can't cross. He's in agony in this flame, and he just wished someone would take a drop of water and put it on his tongue. And what, what did Abraham say? Oh, yeah, well, you should have had some miracles. No, he didn't say that. Men aren't going to believe even if someone should rise from the dead, and that's a prophecy of Jesus. Men, he rose from the dead, people still don't believe. No, what did, what did Abraham say? He said, yeah, your brothers that are up above are yet going to die. They don't need miracles. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. In other words, take them to the Bible. That's all they need to read. Because it contains all they need to know for happiness in this life and happiness in the life to come. Let me conclude with a couple of exhortations. First of all, let us glory in the salvation Jesus provided by his death and resurrection. Brethren, Jonah looked forward to, and we look back upon the one who said, the greater than Jonah is here. By his suffering for our sin and by his victorious death over hell and Satan, our greater than Jonah has provided us victory o'er the grave and set us free from Satan's tyranny, as we sing. He did for us what we could never do for ourselves. What we wouldn't do for ourselves and what we couldn't do for ourselves, he did. Praise be to his name. Finally, let any non-Christian here entrust their soul to Christ for the forgiveness of their sin and for new life in him. See, the sign of Jonah is a message of judgment to those who don't believe, but it's a promise of Forgiveness and new life in those who do believe. Don't be one of these, be one of these. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. It's as simple as that. May God open your eyes to see the kingdom of God. May he grant you faith and repentance and feet to run to Jesus Christ and say to him, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And when you mean business with God like that, he will save you from the wrath to come and give you a meaningful life between here and the day you gasp your last. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you take these things. Oh, open our ears to hear their truth. Open our eyes to see Jesus preached in them. Turn feet from the way of death.